0: Hey everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, welcome to Ideology. I'm here with Drew Stedman, McMurray, and uh, we had a great time last week with Dr. Kevin Watson. If you haven't had a chance to go back and listen to that message on early Methodism and John Wesley, then highly recommend you do so. It was, uh, it was just a treat to get to spend some time with him and glean from him. And, uh, we are coming to you today from the nursing mom's room at Antioch. Uh, if you only knew the behind the scenes of ideology and all the different places that we set up our microphones to bring this content to you, Drew is currently in a, uh, a plush rocking chair right now uh, about to unpack church governance for us. But I um, uh, have a lot of fun putting this together and appreciate your ongoing listenership. And so today we are talking about church governance and picking up on some past themes and looking at how Jesus organizes his church. And so, Drew, why don't you get us kicked off?
1: Thank you, Mick. The smell of the, whatever chemicals are in diapers, not after they've been used, but before they're used. Um, there's a, a faint aroma in my nostril as I prepare this content for you today. Several weeks ago, it's probably actually been a couple months now, I had a friend reach out, and it was in an episode where we, we were talking about power. And um, I had made a comment in this episode about Jesus giving up his power, or most of his power, I think is what, what um, I said. And this friend offered a great critique, saying that Jesus actually gave up all of his power, but retained his authority. And I thought I, I never heard it framed like that before. I thought that was a really interesting concept, and it's building on Philippians 2 of you know, Jesus, who is fully God, emptying himself of his divine power and taking on the form of, of a human and becoming human, so even though he is fully God, also becoming fully man and willingly laying down his divine attributes and subjecting himself to the limitations of humanity. And you see that over and over and over again in his life. What Jesus did not give up is his identity— he is both man and God, and he is the Messiah, He is the king. He you know all of his identity and his authority. And so the significance of this, even as we're releasing this content the day after Easter, I think we see this most powerfully in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because he though being in very nature God, he gave up his divinity and was willing to follow the leadership of the Father even unto death. And so, God himself who spoke the world into existence was willing to allow himself to be crucified up against the tree that he created. I mean it's staggering when you think of all these things and how they all how they all bleed together. And he did not use his his divine power to overcome what the father led him into and even as he is being arrested he says, you know, I I could call legions of angels. I mean he could have with a with a word ended whatever threat would be coming against him but he chose not to and instead the route that jesus chose was complete total submission to the father and ultimately he is vindicated by being raised from the dead so rather than using power to defeat his enemies on the road to the cross he instead submitted himself to the father who used power to ultimately defeat sin and death itself and raise jesus from the dead and pave the way for our resurrection So I've been reflecting upon that concept, and there's a lot of different application points, both in our own lives, how are we submitted to the leadership of the Father. But I'm going to take it in a direction today that might seem a little unique, but I think these two go together. And today we're going to talk about the concept of church government. And this might not be something, especially if you're not a pastor, you may never have thought about this before. But what we're getting at here is how do we then, as the church, follow God's leadership, and how do we maintain and stay within his authority and so that we do not give up our identity or veer off the path of what God has called us to? And that's what we get into when we get into church government, which I believe at the end of the day is us submitting to the headship of Christ and the leadership of the Spirit. So how does that then look in a congregational setting? Interestingly, and this might speak to our, our individualism, I hear a lot of people talking about following the will of God for their life, but typically we interpret that as an individual decision where I would maybe make the argument that first and foremost, that should be a communal conversation, which is church government. How do we, as a people, um, whatever tribe or congregation God's called you to, how do we follow God's leadership? And then how does that inform on an individual level how I, as a human individual, follow God's leadership? But what does it mean for us to be submitted? So um, roadmap for today, then, um, when we talk about church government, we're going to look at the three historic models, how they get blended today, and what some of those mixtures might look like. And then we're going to conclude with the theological overview of, let's, let's take these different models, let's take our context, and how do we interpret that theologically, and then how does that affect the way that we live now? So that's the roadmap for today as we talk about church government.
0: And to tie this into a couple of our past episodes, you know, if we were just, because I think maybe some listeners, you hear the phrase church governance, and it maybe sounds like a, a fairly vanilla topic. It's not It's not that exciting. Where does this intersect with our lives? But we've talked a lot of before about concepts like dialogue and human society and connectivity and relationships. and. And we've talked about church growth and the problem of church growth. And in some of the trends that we've seen in people having had difficult experiences and pulling away, I think it was maybe about a year ago, we talked about the need for the Sunday gathering, a corporate gathering, in the tradition of the church stretching back a couple thousand years. And, you know, if we were just—if you're just one person living on an island, there's no need for any sort of governance or rules uh, governing how you interact with other people but as soon as you add another person all of a sudden you have kind of a code of ethics that will define and inform how you interact with one another in the context of the church you look back I think there's been some idealism in myself and many others that I've known and walked with where we look at the New Testament we're like well it's just we just want to be the New Testament church and in part that's there's a seed there a seed that a pattern that was laid down for us that we can certainly emulate. But what we don't see then are the next couple hundred years of church growth because the church was vibrant and healthy. And as it grew in complexity, it required more uh, organization, more governance. And so, just to set this up, because I hear a topic like this, you know, and, and I wonder where does this, I'm not in church leadership, how does this intersect my life? And I think we want to point out the fact today that. Regardless if you think of this uh, on a a frequent basis or not, this actually has a tremendously profound impact on our lives as believers who are engaged with the body of Christ, engaged with the church to understand what does it look like to flesh out, to walk in the way of Jesus as a community that is dealing with tremendous amounts of complexity. And you throw in all the other kind of counter-narratives from our culture that are pulling people apart. How do we unify today? How do we work together in living out the gospel, living out the one another's of the scriptures? And these topics become immensely important uh, in in that context, in that light.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to add fuel to that fire. Uh, I'm going to make a statement and would love for you to think about it as you're listening. I believe in a hyper-individualistic and post-Christian society that the topic of church government is a really important concept reason I say that is our hyper-individualism teaches us that we are the best arbitrators for what's true and what's right. And a post-Christian society means that our impulse, what we receive when we are living life, are going to be a value system, an ethic, and an overall outlook that is not the same as that that we find within our faith. And so the answer to that, ultimately, I believe, are strong churches. And that's us as the people of God submitted under the Lordship, of jesus following the leadership of the spirit that is the answer is we have to come together and we've talked about that many times but that continues to be as as we've talked about in the past there's themes we circle back to and that's one of them that to navigate the complexity of the the hour that we're in culturally is going to require us to have very strong churches and then within that we have to figure out how do we as a congregation follow god's leadership as these churches and this is where church government comes into play I'd also want to state that in the background of this, um, there's been quite a few high-profile scandals of various churches, and, and it really covers the breadth of denomination and even forms a government that we're about to get into, which should add another level of sobriety for us, that um, some of these matters are easy to dismiss, like you said, Mick. You know, it's, it doesn't have immediate relevance to us, but um, there's several things in life. I, I jokingly refer to this as insurance. You know, you, you don't want to talk about it till you need it, but by the time you need it, it's pretty much too late to start talking about it. And that's where, as a community, we have to recognize that things aren't always going to go well, that at times there are going to be problems and sin and all these other things. And so we have to, to really invest and sow into how does God lead the church, and how do we respond to his leadership, and then how do we organize as humans around that, not based upon power. Um, and that's I want to bring it back to where we started. Where this goes wrong, if it purely becomes about power, who controls the financial strings of the church, who has the strongest personality, who can muster the, mo- the most votes, either on an elder board or within a congregation due to influence in some way, Um, when, when the church starts to be led based on that, that will ruin any form of church government. Instead, it's when we're under authority. When is the church under the authority of Jesus and the Holy Spirit? By participating in the way the Holy Spirit is moving and leading the church. That's where church government is done right, even amid the complexity of our humanity. And so this is maybe where we draw a distinction between these two. And I think our default posture is to defer to power, whoever can control however they get there. Typically, it's going to be some form of political control over the church. That's our default posture, unless in advance we've really prayed into and thought about how are we submitted to God's leadership, and that's where we get into a healthy form of church government under his authority. Let's dive into the three models that are historic, and um, I'm going to go through all three of them and give a bit of an overview, strengths and weaknesses, and some biblical support. So the three are, first, Episcopal. And that is not referring to the denomination that's the branch of, or a branch of, the Church of England in the United States, but is rather a a form of church government that encompasses a lot of different types of churches. Second is Presbyterian, and same thing, there is the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA or the PCUSA, um, it's not just referring to those denominations, but is a form of church government. And then lastly, congregational. So these are the three historic forms of church government. And then there's a lot of how they get mixed, and um, a lot of of modern churches are going to typically have elements of each of these. So let's start with Episcopal. If I was going to define this is any form of church government that has a bishop is Episcopal. And typically what this would mean is there is a hierarchy and there is a bishop that is operating as a representative of God who is ordained and called to order the church. Most Episcopal forms of church government would then actually try to trace their lineage all the way back to the apostles and what's called apostolic succession. And in this idea, you know, whoever the current bishop, there was, you know, they could trace their genealogy and their lineage all the way back to one of the first apostles. And, you know, I think you can be skeptical about the accuracy of that, but that's the ideal at least, is that through the laying on of hands, this calling and vocation has been passed down through the ages in order to order the church today. Prominent denominations you have, first and foremost, is Catholic, where in the Catholic Church, maybe the uniqueness is not only is it led by bishops, but then there is a supreme bishop, the pope, who orders the entire Catholic Church, and in a very distinct way, and theologically is actually intended uh, in Catholic belief to order all of the church on earth today, and kind of this human stand-in for Christ, um, not that they are Christ, but that they're operating in that seat to order the church. Then you could get into all the various forms of orthodoxy, which also have bishops. The main difference there is that the bishops would oversee a a region, but no one bishop has complete authority over the church. And so they'd have patriarchs that um, would have an expanded authority, but then they would gather together as a council of bishops, and that would be how binding decisions are made through the church. So in in groups like orthodoxy and also the Anglican church would actually operate this way as well. They would look at any past councils would be considered authoritative because these are the people that, that, that Christ has appointed to provide leadership for the church at a different point in time, gathered together and under the leadership of the Spirit made a decision. And so that's then a final decision. And that's the only way that decisions can be made on behalf of the whole church is through a council. This is a conciliar expression of church, but it's with bishops. Methodists, um, we, we interviewed Dr. Watson last week, uh, Methodists have an Episcopal form of church government. But then you also, maybe in a way that might be surprising for some, a lot of Pentecostal and charismatic churches also have this form of government. So the Vineyard USA is is one of the biggest examples, um, but many others have this as well. And tied to an Episcopal form of government is also this idea of apostolic. And those two, they're not necessarily synonymous, but they're very closely tied. And actually it was early in the history of the church um, one of the very first heresies was this guy named Montanus, and he was a very charismatic prophet. And what he was doing up, up until his time, about you know 150 years after the resurrection, there were these prophets that would respond to God. But then you had bishops in different areas that were the ones entrusted with ordering the church, and they would have a relationship together. But then Montanus came along and essentially said, because I hear from God directly, I don't need to submit to the bishop, And ultimately, that was condemned as heretical, along with some other things. And that set the church in motion. It was really in response to heresy. The role of the bishop was strengthened because somebody has to be responsible so that you don't have people just coming along and claiming new revelation that pull the church astray. And so you still have this, and that's all these um, more historic mainline churches. But then a lot of charismatic churches would take this idea of a bishop, and rather than it being apostolic succession, there's a variation to this concept that it's not because they can claim their lineage all the way back to the New Testament, but instead there's a spiritual gift or anointing that is imparted to certain people to carry this authority. And a lot of it's based on their fruitfulness. You know, they've started a lot of churches, and um, and then they oversee those churches, and so that then they operate in that authority. So in this model, it's not apostolic succession that imparts authority, but it's instead a direct work of the Holy Spirit that imparts authority. There'd be a similar understanding of what the role is, but— What validates it is is going to be a bit different, even though they might look the same.
0: It's interesting, and I know you're you're going to compare and contrast this with Presbyterian and congregational models, but with this expression in particular, where do you see this in the scriptures? What would you say are some strengths and some weaknesses of this particular model?
1: All three of these models, you will find passionate defenders, and they will all claim both authority um, based on the New Testament and also based upon church history. So if you talk with somebody who has this form of government, they're probably going to argue it from two ways. Um, Biblically, what they would point to would be, you know, even though Paul talks a lot about elders, the fact is Paul was appointing elders, and that's what a bishop does. So a bishop is somebody who can go along and appoint elders. Um, The elders did not vote themselves in, but Paul actually went from town to town, and he carried a different type of apostolic authority that enabled him to actually be the one that self-selected those elders rather than it being some form of a congregational vote. And so the very fact that Paul is writing letters, the very fact that Paul is telling the elders how to operate, you know he is exercising the type of authority that would be appropriate for a bishop to operate. Um, so they would, they would point to that. They also might point to what Jesus said to Peter about being the rock upon which I will build the church, the role of the 12 apostles where they were set apart from the rest, Um, All of these different things, and typically there's going to be a high view of ordination within this model because what you're saying is this person, even though they're flawed, has been called and set apart by God. And just like the 12 apostles, it's not that they were more holy than the rest of Israel. It's just that Jesus chose them. There is a gift of grace that was imparted to them that allowed them to lead. And so it's going to be a lot of these kind of concepts that would come in from biblical support. I'd say the strength of this, a um, couple, couple of different elements of it. One, I do think it enables the church to have apostolic leadership. And so you can have, if you have a godly bishop who's fully surrendered and submitted to Jesus in this environment, they are, not, they are not submitted to the congregation, but they're actually able to challenge the congregation. And so when this is done right, what you have is you have leaders in the church that are leading the congregation, calling them to holiness, not fearful of them because they're afraid they're going to get voted out, but willing to deliver hard truths, and willing to lead the church into a vision that God has given even if it is different than what is comfortable or what people most want. And and I and again going back to Paul, you if you read his correspondence to Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you see this. You know, he is challenging them. You're not allowed to reflect the world and so he's able to lead them into something different. Another strength of this model is that it is if you had to pick one that has the most longevity historically, it's going to be this model. And you see this in a variety of different settings, both the Orthodox Church the Catholic Church, the Church of the East and the Far East, all of them had this model. It's definitely the primary model through all of the patristic era um, in the hundreds of years after the, uh, the New Testament was written, and you still see it today in a, in a variety of different places. The big weakness of this one is that if the bishops start going sideways, then you have a real problem. And we've seen this in a lot of uh, denominations, a lot of current mainline denominations where you have people in congregations that are desiring to follow God, but then they have bishops who have almost total authority over the church that are then able to lead the church in all kinds of directions at times, even heretical or apostate directions. And that's actively happening in a number of denominations today. And there's really no recourse. Um, and it's very hard to check that. And so even though these groups can grow really quickly, if you have godly bishops, um, they can also decline very quickly if over time that model gets corrupted. And, and you know it's a lot of authority that's entrusted to one person And that's probably the second key weakness for this model is anytime you have one person that accumulates a lot of authority like that, it can lead to a lot of challenges. It doesn't mean there can't be good people who are able to navigate that well, but on the whole, and if you play that out over the course of generations, at some point you're liable to get somebody who comes along who is going to compromise that position in some way and create a problem for the church.
0: As an aside, uh, in looking at church history, it's been interesting to see the. you talk about the strengths and weaknesses. When you look at Reformations, it was almost 50-50 the times Reformation happened within the church and without the church or outside of the church. And there were really strengths and weaknesses to both. The reformations that happened within the church uh, often had a longer shelf life because they had the protections of many hundreds or even thousands of years of tradition and a a long history of biblical interpretation that kept them within certain bounds. Uh, Of course, it happens slower because you have the machinery of the church you're working against at times. Reformations that happen outside the church didn't have that machinery to work against so they could move very rapidly, but often those reformations descended into heresy within a generation or two because they didn't have those protections. And so I think for a member of a church movement that is relatively young, I think at times I've had a bias against longstanding church traditions, but it's been eye-opening to look at the strengths of hundreds or thousands of years of a biblical tradition, an interpretive tradition, and uh, and practices that date back to the early centuries of the church. And so um, I hope you can listen with an open mind to these various church expressions, even if you've been in one uh, denomination your whole life. Uh, There really is beauty to to varying expressions of the body of Christ throughout history. So Drew, if that's the Episcopal model, what about the
1: Presbyterian model? This is the model that leans most heavily on eldership. So in a purely Presbyterian model, you'll have a delineation between ruling elders and teaching elders. Ruling elders are those who would govern the church. Teaching elders are the ones who teach the word of God. And what you would find is this model is both on a congregational level, but also on a denominational level. So, And in congregation, you have elders that oversee the church, but then you would have a few elders from each congregation that would form a larger presbytery for a region, and then eventually that would go up to a national level and beyond where you would have select elders forming additional teams of eldership and kind of this hierarchy. So that way, at every level, you have representatives from all the churches that are exercising leadership on behalf of the church. This was heavily introduced during the Reformation and um, was in response in many ways to, as you said, Mick, um, where there needed to be a significant reforming of the church where the Episcopal model had started to go crazy and, and had been corrupted um, and was later actually reformed by the Catholic church because of its corruption, um, you had this model as an alternative where they were still saying we need to follow the leadership of God and the church needs leadership, but we feel this leadership is going to be better expressed um, if we have more than one person and we have a group of people that discern the will of God together. So what, as this group, went back to scripture as a, as a way where they're Looking backward to say, somewhere we lost our way, Scripture is going to help us get back in this doctrine of sola scriptura. And so we need to go back to Scripture and recapture the vibrancy and the spirit and the fire of the early church. And then as they were reading Scripture, they saw that frequently churches were led by teams of elders. And they perceived that as the more biblical model. And so that's what led to this, was this desire to anchor themselves in the New Testament when it came to leading the church. Biblically, you see this all throughout the book of Acts, or I think of 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. You know, a lot of different instructions, and it seems like this is the way that churches were organized. And even in the earliest days of the church, we had the 12 apostles. Um, Yes, it seems like Peter was a leader, but it wasn't as rigid as a hierarchical form um, that did develop later in history. There, There was a lot more of a group discernment process. I think this model has a lot of strengths. And even though the full Presbyterian model is not frequently used, you know, with ruling elders and teaching elders and um, tiered eldership teams, that's more rare, and you're probably only going to find that in a few specific Presbyterian denominations. The concept of elders leading a church, I would think, more than anything else, is the standard today. And the major strength of this model is the recognition that there is wisdom in many counselors. And if you ever just have one person making decisions— even if they're godly, they're still going to have blind spots. They're still going to have areas where they're not able to lead well. And so it's when you get a group of people, like you see in Ephesians 4, you have various forms of gifting, some that are great evangelism, some that are teacher pastors, some that are prophetic or apostolic. And it's when they come together, led by the one spirit in a process of mutual discernment, that they're able to actually follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So it's this concept that the Spirit works in a people, not just in a person, and that, that's what enables this. So there's a lot of strength to this. I would say a lot more durability of being able to navigate difficult things, um, a lot more of a well-rounded ministry that can occur this way as far as having multiple people that are responsible to provide leadership in the church, and it does allow for a more clear representation from a congregation. Uh, many of the Episcopal churches might have a vestry or some other local leadership team, but they really have no authority. But in an elder model, um, the elders do have an authority in the church, and so they're able to then affect change if change is needed within the congregation. And you know, if you know people who grew up in a very strict Episcopal model church, um, a lot of their church frustration or pain has tended to come when there was an outside bishop that made decisions and there was very little opportunity for the local church to interact with that. And at times that can get—I've you know, I've heard a lot of stories over my years where you just see, wow, that's just how painful that can be. So this allows for some kind of hedge against that. Uh, we still have people that are making decisions on behalf of the church, but they're locally represented, and there's more than just one. A major weakness in this model, and we'll see this as well with the congregational model, is it's less easy to impart a very clear vision for the church. You have multiple different people, and at times, and where this can get really unhealthy is if you have elders that are jockeying for power and influence. It can introduce uh, politics into the church. Um, but also, just even if there's good people, you know, th- there can be a temptation over time to to believe that whoever's supposed to be leading the vision for the church, typically a pastor, that they can work for the elders rather than have a responsibility to shepherd the church. There's a very big distinction between those two, and it becomes more about placating, you know, an elder team, or about maintaining the status quo or not upsetting the apple cart, than it is about leading the church into the vision of God and even being willing to preach hard messages. Or lead the church into the future that God has for them.
0: Yeah, I see the uh, some of the ethos of the Gospels in that too, where it's been a theme we've talked about in this podcast. Where you know we could have received the Scriptures as golden tablets that descended from heaven, but God's. Commitment to work in and through humanity and the messiness of that, and you talk about you know some of the messiness of not having the the centralized vision and that strong leadership you know top down. And maybe I'm showing my hand here and probably a bias towards this type, maybe a little bit more of this type of model over an episcopal model. But I see the some of the messiness of God working in and through His people and the complexity of having to work that out. I think there's some real beauty in that, even if it is messy at times. Okay, so we're working, I think, more towards a decentralized leadership structure here. So take us one step further Let's look at the congregational model.
1: A congregational model is a model where the authority for leading the church actually rests in the congregation as a whole. So if the Episcopal model, there is a bishop, and then there are ordained priests or pastors. Um, if the elder model, there's a team of elders. In the congregational model, it's actually the whole church. The most prominent denomination that embraces this are Baptists. Not all Baptist churches are congregational in their polity, or some Baptist churches even do a mixture where, they, where the congregation would vote in an elder team, and so they wouldn't be making decisions on everything, but they would be making a decision on who the elders are supposed to be. So there are variations to this. But at the end of the day, it's the congregation as a whole that has a responsibility for the church. This also arose a little bit later out of the Reformation, and a lot of the rise in this model parallels the rise of democracy, When it comes to political governance and it's this concept of like any any one person or team of people can be corrupted and you can't really depend upon them so the best thing to do is just trust all the people to be able to make a decision however messy that might be now i've got to admit i can be skeptical of this model because anytime i see something that seems to mirror political or philosophical developments and then kind of gets read back in as a biblical model always raises a little bit of a flag for me However, there is biblical support for this. and two prominent examples, um, in the discipline process lined out in Matthew 18, the final step is to take it before the church, which would indicate that the church is the final authority. So it's not take it before the bishop, it's not even take it before the elders, but take it before the church. Secondly, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, um, when he's talking about immorality in the church, he does not rebuke the elders, but he rebukes the entire congregation. So that would imply that the entire congregation is able to do something about it. And it's not really a letter that's just intended for a couple leaders, but it's intended for the whole congregation as though this was their entire responsibility. So there is biblical warrant for this, at least to some extent. And I would say the major strength with this one is it becomes a wonderful hedge against people who try to take the church in the wrong direction. And you see this, I think, in the durability in a lot of the Baptist movements, where if you look at some of these incredible revivals that broke out in the United States 300 years ago, Many of them lost their fire, and a lot of that happened where you had these elite leaders that um, started to take over the church, but they wanted to conform to the patterns of the world, and the church eventually lost its fire. What the Baptists had, for all the messiness, and if you know Baptist history, there is a lot of messiness, but still, because of congregational polity, what was able to happen is there's always this group of people that could be a remnant that could reform the church. And so what they were able to do is say, we're not going to follow just because you know, somebody went along and went to a seminary and embraced a form of liberal theology and came back. We're unwilling to go that way. We want to fully surrender to the Lord. And so they would embrace that. So it provides this ongoing mechanism for renewal and makes it a lot harder for any one person or group of people to take over a whole denomination. They can take over churches and lead churches astray, but it's a lot harder for them to take over the entirety of Baptist. And so I think that is, that that does merit a lot of consideration I'd also say this model, probably more than any other, takes seriously the concept, the Protestant concept of the priesthood of all believers. And it's this idea that if all of us have the Holy Spirit, and if all of us are the people of God, then all of us should be a part of the church and be active in the church. And even though I don't embrace this model on a personal level, I do appreciate the challenge that the church is never meant to be this, the place that is turned over to the professionals or the people that have been around. But if you're a member of the church, that you have a responsibility to the church. And even if your church is not congregational, you know, when you see churches that have a congregational polity, there's a lot of buy-in in that church um, because the people are the church. And I think that's a wonderful reminder to us about the role of people in the church. The weakness of this model, and I think is pretty pronounced, is politics. What happens, even though for all that I'm saying and how wonderful it sounds, in reality, if you have 100 people, Um, what's going to end up happening is factions will form within the congregation. And typically, there's always going to be a leader. There will always be some kind of power system. And rather than it being something that's thoughtful and where there are people where maybe that's based upon godliness or some other form, um, in this model, it's going to probably be based upon influence, unless there is a very careful group of people ensuring that that doesn't happen. And so this is where you hear all the stories about the family that controls the church, you know, and they just make the church whatever they want it to be. It's also very hard for this model, in my opinion, to provide a prophetic voice that challenges the current of society. Um, Because, you know, what happens is whatever the majority of the congregation wants tends to be what's going to be enshrined. And so where that can be a sinful pattern, it's really challenging because who's going to be able to come along and challenge the congregation and lead the congregation? And so this is where you would see the strongest contrast with the Episcopal model of church. Um, What if the church needs to be rebuked? What if they've embraced a sinful pattern and they need somebody to come along like the Apostle Paul? In a congregational model, you risk that person getting voted out because they were willing to give a hard word. And I think that's a real danger with this model. Let me give one last thought as we talk about models, then we're going to turn the corner and close it out. Just how do we make sense of all of it? A lot of churches today, especially in the United States, do not fully embrace any one of these models, but have some form of a mixture. And I think what people recognize is that all of these models have strengths and weaknesses. And so it's actually by incorporating different elements of these models that we're able to maybe maximize the strengths and mitigate the weaknesses. Um, I mentioned one a second ago where a congregation might vote in elders, then those elders might call a senior pastor. Um, A lot of churches have senior pastors that functionally have almost like an Episcopal-like authority but they also would have an eldership or even a congregational vote that calls the senior pastor. And so there's just a, there's a, a lot of variations to this. I, if I had to pick what's the most standard you're going to find in American churches, if you're part of a church that's not tied to a historic denomination where one of these models is very much embedded in their identity as a church, then probably what you're going to see is some team of elders a senior pastor who holds a significant amount of authority, and then some mechanism for involving the church in decision-making. And even in denominations that are fully one of these models, um, I I think they're wise to incorporate other elements. So if your your polity is congregational, then you probably want to have a pastor that can lead the church and has a lot of authority to lead the church, so the church has a vision, and and you need to be careful to let them have a lot of that. And, and you see that with a healthy church that has a congregational polity, or you have you have maybe a senior pastor who holds a lot of authority almost in an Episcopal-type model. Typically, they're going to form some type of eldership team so that they're, they're not on their own making decisions. Um, so this is probably most common today is some variation of these models. And typically what it is is just recognizing there are biblical examples, strengths, and historical witness in all of them. So let's try to put them together to have something that is going to allow us to live under the authority of the Spirit.
0: Yeah. No, I actually I, I love that. I, I love that there are strengths and weaknesses to all these models. And again, I think it it points to the fact that Christianity is ultimately not formulaic, but it's Jesus who said that he is building his church. He's at the head of the church. And uh, and it requires participation with his spirit. And, and there are certainly things to glean from church history, things to glean uh, patterns we see in the scriptures. But there's complexity when it comes to human relationships. And, and this requires dialogue with uh, God himself and, and then working this out humbly, that Philippians 2 uh, attitude, that mentality to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But to consider others more important than ourselves, because this was Jesus's very attitude, and so I just I love that that this is a an organic, living, breathing. It's an organism. It's not an organization, though. It requires some measure of organization, as does every organism. But ultimately, it's alive. It's not static. This is a dynamic entity that we're part of, and that that just that is going to by necessity, it's going to require process. It's going to require patience. It's going to require working through issues over time, uh, and it's going to require the oil of the Holy Spirit to keep the engine from, from burning up. So, Drew, how would you kind of land this plane? What are some further considerations for
1: us? I'm really skeptical whenever I hear somebody definitively say this is the New Testament model of church, and whether that's in past episodes we talked about like how churches are structured when it comes to services or organized. Um, I also am skeptical when that is talking about church governance and polity. I, I don't think you can say that in the New Testament. In fact, Acts 15, all three groups I've mentioned will point to Acts 15 as evidence for why their model is the best. I'm like, if you're all saying it's that way, it probably shows that it's not as clear as, as we might want it to be. So when I look at that, I, I like to think and maybe take a step back and, and ask the question, why was this not more clear in the New Testament? You know, if it's, if it's important to say this is the definitive New Testament model, I don't see that in the New Testament, and I would have to ask the question then, why did the Holy Spirit not guide the church to settle that early? This was not the case in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, the whole book of Leviticus is a meticulous ordering of the people of Israel and how they're supposed to operate. And so it's not as though God has not led his people or God is incapable of leading his people to finalize that kind of structure. So like, why is that not needed um, when it comes to the church? I don't view that as an omission, as like the Holy Spirit somehow didn't inspire Scripture good enough or something like that. That's not the way that we should think about that. I think instead, what we should ask the question is, what does Scripture tell us? What seem to be the priorities? And what I see over and over and over again is more than the governance of how the church is organized, what God is after is who we are supposed to be as people. Another way of saying this is sin will corrupt any form of church government. And we can point historically at examples of revival movements in all of these church models, and we could also point to examples of horrific scandals in all of these church models. There are tremendous stories of church hurt from all three of these models, just as there are powerful stories of transformation from all three of these models. And that sobers me, because I think what God's going to say to us is we will not be able to structure or model our way out of our journey as disciples of Jesus who are being conformed into the image of Christ. If you are as a person or we as a people are Christ-like if we are humble, if we reflect the fruit of the Spirit, if we are willing to repent, and, you know, all these different things, then any one of these three models can be a powerful environment for revival. I think we need to be conscious of the strengths and weaknesses, but ultimately I don't think the church structure, the church governance and polity is going to be the make or break for the health of the church. And I think that's because God's not going to give us a form of government that is going to remove our need to grow as disciples and be conformed into his image. So sin will distort any model, but godliness can can make these models work. And that's why I started this conversation about authority, because when the question is not how do I as a human exercise my human giftedness to lead the church in the way that I want to go. And I'm going to form coalitions or seize power or be a bishop and just arbitrarily make decisions or whatever. But instead, I'm going to live with the sobriety under the fear of the Lord that even if it's not what I want in my flesh, what my chief concern is, how do we follow the leadership of the Spirit and the headship of Christ? Then that's where these models can all be healthy and appropriate. So I'm going to build on that. And I'm also going to say, whatever church background you're from, what I would encourage you not to do is start nitpicking different forms of government. I think it's fair to ask the question, are we submitted rightly? I think it's healthy to understand in your church background, how is this expressed within your church? Just so you know, I think if you're in any form of church leadership, I think it's, it's always right to make sure, are we exercising this healthily? So if you're in an Episcopal form of church, that's fine. I, I have no stones to throw. I think that can be very healthy and very vibrant. Um, I would probably ask, how are you expressing fivefold giftings? How are you leaning on the wisdom of the congregation? How are you ensuring that you're responsive to the needs of the whole church? But I think you can be confident in the model that God's given you. Likewise, if you're in a congregational church, again, I have no stones to throw. I I think my, my chief question would be, how do you make sure that you're not making decisions based on interest groups within the church, but instead as the church, you're coming before God and you're really taking that seriously, your responsibility to be fully submitted and surrendered under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I think when it comes time and you're at committee meetings and church vote meetings, it shouldn't be about coalitions. Instead, it would be leading the church into radical acts of surrender and obedience that then cause you to, to make godly decisions even against what you would desire. You know, So that, that's the spirit, I think, that makes this work. And I think it is also healthy to be aware, just as we did, we did an episode months ago about various models of church. And I would apply the same concept here, be aware of the weaknesses in whatever form of church government you have. So that way you can be active in making sure that you're doing what you can to mitigate some of those weaknesses. I don't think it's the, the governance issue itself that's the make or break, but it's our awareness so we know how to respond to the authority of the Spirit. I'll end with this thought, to say a final theological reflection We need to remember that the church is not a human institution. The church is the body of Christ under the headship of Christ. The church is the household of God, God's chosen people, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the bride of Christ. Uh, The church is alive only in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's breath is what brings life to the church and pulls us in together and the role of us in the church and i would say especially the longer you're in ministry and the the more authority you have in your role the more you need to meditate and be aware of the fact that your chief responsibility is to be submitted and yielded to the leadership of the holy spirit there's a friend of ours up in dallas michael miller he says his job for him as a lead pastor is to be the first follower and i think that's a great reflection of what it means that our responsibility is to follow the headship of christ and the leadership of the spirit And I believe that's where God is calling and leading his people. And if we get that right, I am convinced that everything else will fall into place. But if we miss that, we can argue church government, church structure all day long. So if we miss that, we're not going to ultimately walk in the fullness of who we're called to be as those who follow the leadership and the life of the Holy Spirit.
0: It's great stuff, Drew. Uh, really appreciate the work you did to uh, organize the thoughts today. And to you, the listener, we're just so thankful for your ongoing participation. Hope this content is uh, fruitful, helpful as uh, we continue to be formed together into the image of Jesus in this kind of cultural moment in which we live. Thanks for tuning in, and we will catch you next week on Ideology.